Hello, this is Tom Pacello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission is to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales, content, and value enablement journeys, and to fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Peter Strokorb, and he is known by the tagline, More Sales Faster. He is author of the books, Smarketing, Sell Smarter, Not Harder, and The One Team Method. He's founder and CEO of Peter Strokorb Advisory and sales exec and leader with experience at likes of Sony, Dell, DXC, Canon, and 3M. And I'm sure I've missed a few there, Peter. Evolvers, please welcome Peter Strokorb. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be on your program. Awesome. That's not a Brooklyn accent I hear, Peter. Where are you joining us from today? No, I'm, I'm from slightly out of town. I, I'm in Sydney in Australia in, in Down Under. Awesome. Well, I absolutely love it. I'm sure in Australia, as well as here in the US, you guys are experiencing you know, the great resignation, labor shortage. Uh, many organizations are definitely struggling to fill open sales positions, us included. And I know that one of the key questions you sought to answer in your latest books, Marketing, was how can we achieve more without adding more resources? And I thought that was a really timely question. Talk about that a little bit. Why is this question so important now? Okay, well, if, let, let's start with uh, defining a, a term. And the term is the, your revenue team. You know, mm -hmm. Everybody focus on their sales and, you know, and then you've got the VPs of sales bashing up the salespeople every Monday morning in their, in their cadence calls and say, sell more faster, you know? Um, but, but in reality, if, if you're a CEO, you, you've got other players in your organization that are actually contributing to revenue, one would hope. And, and I'm talking specifically about your marketing team and also your customer success team. Mm -hmm. So if, if you get those three different parts of the organization to work in unison and to focus on the same outcome, you, you will achieve more. And, and as, as my tagline says, more sales faster if, um, if they all work together rather than operating in silos. So, so I think you should stop thinking about sales, marketing, and customer success, and you should just consider your, them your revenue team. Yeah, and we're seeing the rise of the chief revenue officer to kind of help accomplish this, as well as revenue operations as opposed to, and revenue enablement as opposed to sales operations and sales enablement, right? Yes, and now, now um, don't get me started on the role of the CRO because <laughs> unfortunately, Tom, most CROs are just glorified sales VPs mm -hmm. and, and they don't actually have marketing or um, customer success underneath them. And, and so they're, they're kind of fighting with one arm behind their back. And it, I know it's a hot title and everybody wants to be a CRO right now, but, but uh, if, if you're a CEO considering a CRO, please make sure your organization is CRO ready. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't, don't hire a VP of sales who's only in charge of sales and then ask them to sort out the mess and fight all the infighting in and all the politics within the organization. Give them a foundation on which they can actually grow and thrive and, and, and grow your company. So yeah. that's, that's just my thing about the CRO. <laughs> And I think what you're what you're talking about here is, you know, and Mary Shea, I got to interview her a couple of weeks ago, and she's, you know, the, the main reason to do this is, look, when a buyer wants to do business with you, they don't know the difference between sales, marketing, customer success, 
they don't operate in those silos, yet we have those very defined and often insular silos within the organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not what's even worse, they get um, different KPIs and different objectives. And, uh, and so marketing thinks they're just there to provide leads and to, to grow the brand. And sales thinks they're just there to close deals. And, and somewhere in the middle, the um, never the twain shall meet. And, yeah, and, and then customer that's, that's, success picks it up and they're like, what did you sell and what are we fulfilling on and how do we measure, you know, outcomes to what you sold? Yeah, and, and so, so all those organizations that you mentioned that I used to work in in, in, in the corporate sector, they, they always had uh, separate silos between sales and marketing and customer success. And, and, and they, in, in some of those organizations, I, I half joke that they actually had barbed wire fences between the different departments, you know? And, and so that's, that's why I wrote the book and that's why I created the one team method because there is actually a way to bring sales, marketing and customer success together as one revenue team to help you to grow more sales. Now, what I want to do is talk about each one of the components separately, but I do want to eventually bring it back onto the one team concept. But let's talk about marketing for a second, you know, and, and kind of building that better pipeline and, and more opportunities because in-person events are definitely slow to come back post-pandemic. Uh, digital is being completely overloaded, right? Yeah. We're getting more emails. We're getting more digital marketing, more social marketing thrown at us. Um, the term pitch slapped has been put around, you know, you're getting pitch slapped from marketing, pitch slapped from sellers all the time. How do you create better opportunities without spending a fortune? So what's kind of your secret here? Okay, so let, let me start with what not to do, right? And, and um, before the pandemic, it was okay uh, for people to pitch slap you. Like we kind of accepted it as part of the norm. It is what it is now, you know? Um, just ignore it. And and um, I, I I just I was cleaning out my emails this morning, and and uh, about you know a, a good number of them were saying meeting at one p.m. today. That was the tagline, the headline, right? <laughs> and and there's this sort of a not not a presumptive close, but a presumptive opening that that we would meet, and and they would tell me all their their, their stuff, and I would be fascinated and just want to buy it, right? I, I mean, who does this work for, really, right? So, so what I'm saying is that the technology has evolved to a point where we can reach out to just about anybody on the planet. You know, the MarTech stack allows you to reach out on cold calling, on, on uh, social media like LinkedIn, and of course, uh, via email. And, and that's why people use it. But, but think about what you're doing. You, you're sending out 100,000 emails, hoping that, uh, you know, half a dozen might be interested. What... So the half dozen that are, that are interested are the ones that you focus on, but what happens to the 99,998 other ones that you're cheesing off in the process? So you're actually you know, messing with your brand by doing this unsolicited uh, outreach that uh, people have now started to call pitch slapping because that it's, that's what it feels like to the recipient, particularly if it happens on LinkedIn. So somebody says, Tom, we've got a few contacts in common. Let's connect. Oh, yeah, okay, Tom goes innocently. Let's connect. That's fine. And then I go, buy my stuff. No? But yeah. who does this work for? Does this work for you? Never. So, so why do it? Never work. So Alice Hyman and I had a webinar the other day, and, and we had CEOs online, and we said to the CEOs, how many cold calls do you take every day? And they said, well, none. And we said, so why the hell do you have people in your organization ringing people like you when you know it doesn't work? 
So, so when I say let's start with what not to do, let's stop doing all the stuff that doesn't work. And for God's sake, let's not do more of it in the hope that it will work. Because you know, you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. You know what the definition of that is. So, so enough said. Let's talk about what does work. So, what we now need to do is not just reach out to suspects and prospects. And, and oh, by the way, that's another thing that um, um, what what we used to call suspects and prospects is now all of a sudden called leads. You get a faceless list of uh, of uh, contacts and and they're sold to you as leads when they're not qualified by any stretch of the imagination so that's another thing that i rave on about <laughs> um, but anyway let's talk about what does work so that's more, much more interesting so so i say that you, you it's not enough to reach out to your ideal prospects but what you need to do is to engage them and and i i always talk about that you need to create what i call the lean forward moment where I, where I say something to you and, and Tom goes, oh, Peter, that sounds really interesting. Tell me more. And I've leaned forward because I'm now interested. And I've asked you a question that allows you to sell to me because you've given me your permission to sell at that very point, not before. So what we need to do is create the lean forward moment. So we need to not sell at the first point of contact. All we need to do is intrigue. Yeah. So now you, you're going to ask me, how do you intrigue? Exactly. And, and I'm, uh, I'm going to say there's, there's three ways that you can intrigue and create that lean forward moment with, with, uh, with a, if at the first time of um, contact with your, with your prospect. And that is that, uh, and, and um, assuming that they're reasonably senior in the organization and they're, they're a decision maker, because that's, let's face it, that's really the only people worth reaching out to if they can actually make a decision to buy from you, right? So let's say you're calling on somebody fairly senior and they're giving you like 15 seconds of their time before mm -hmm. they decide whether you're wasting their time or not. And so you've got 15 seconds to make, make your pitch. But instead of making a pitch, what we're gonna do is just say something that, that hooks them, you know, that gets them interested and they go, oh, now I wanna know more, damn it. So, so the, the three ways that you can achieve that is either by making them aware of an opportunity that they didn't realize they had, mm -hmm. or conversely, alerting them to a risk that they didn't know they were facing. Now, both of those, let's face it, require homework. So mm -hmm. you've, got to, you've got to research the organization, you've got to understand them almost better than they do themselves because you know something about them that they don't know themselves. And, and that's not easy to pull off, but it is possible. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that at scale. So, but there is a third way. Mm -hmm. And the third way is to help them to realize that they have a need for the thing that you're selling. Not to tell them, but to help them to understand that they have a need for the thing that you're selling. And, and, and you do that by, um, through thought leadership. Mm -hmm. and, and so you're coming from a, a position of authority. You, you know something that, they don't know, and they actually acknowledge that because you're you're, you're positioning yourself as an expert in, in your particular field, mm -hmm. and and you say, um, Tom, did you realize that um, when you want to buy something like like we're selling, that um, there's there's risk involved in making a business decision? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, there's risk in every business decision that you make. Okay, so Tom, would you like to know what your risks are for you if, in in buying the thing that we're selling? 
big idea. Yeah, bloody oath. I want to, I want to know what the risks are because I want to avoid them. And then you say, well, if the, the five risks that you're facing are one, two, three, four, five. And by the way, the, the most basic risk is that you pay good money and you don't get what you're expected to, to get, right? So that's the lowest common denominator and then there's others from, from there. So, so by helping them to understand that um, in making this decision that you can help them make an informed buying decision, that's, that's the key. So as soon as they see you that we're no longer in an adversarial position where I'm trying to sell you something and you're trying to resist me and I'm trying to use closing techniques to get you to transact and 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 you're trying to to you know object to all those that those days are gone that that's really part of the old sales funnel that was invented in 1898 <laughs> we've been using a sales model for 120 odd years that was invented way before the internet, in, in fact, a couple of centuries ago almost, right? Yeah. And, and so, so I'm saying instead of focusing on what we're selling and how we want to sell it, driven by CROs, driven by VPs of sales, we need to focus on the buyer and how they want to buy from us. And so instead of creating this adversarial relationship where I'm pitch slapping you and trying to shoehorn you into, into my sales process, we, we need to help the buyer to come to the conclusion that we are the one that they want to transact with and we sell the thing that they that is exactly what they need. Yeah, so delivering insights to them about their company that are unique, that they may not realize, or about their yeah. industry and trends. Well, Giving yes, them either. guides like purchase guides, comparison guides, things like that. So, so either that, so if, if you have special insight into them that they don't realize that you have or that they don't realize they have themselves, um, that, that's absolute gold, but, mm -hmm. but it's pretty tricky to pull off. But, mm -hmm. but the, the third way I described is actually to say, look, um, here are the three, five or seven things that you should look out for when you buy our thing. Mm -hmm. Or here are the three, five or seven things that you should consider so that you understand that you need the thing that we're selling. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so we need to start with a business conversation, not with a sales conversation. Absolutely. And, and, and that's in an advisory, no matter what it is, it's it's advisory, not features, function, price kind of oriented. Well, totally. so again, again, stop selling, stop focusing on what you're selling. Start focusing on your buyer, on the outcome that you achieve for them and helping them to make an informed buying decision. And, and, and guess what, Tom? It, it won't feel like selling to either the seller or the buyer if, mm -hmm. if we help them to make a decision. Love it. Right? It'll be much more pleasant for both parties. And, and, and this whole notion of uh, let's just sell harder, not smarter, is, is just crazy. You know? yeah. and, and, and but we see it repeated. You know, Peter, it's very frustrating. We see it repeated over and over again. You know, it's all about scale. Let's ramp up the number of calls. Let's ramp up the number of outreach. Let's ramp up the number of of ads, all non-value add, you know, and it yeah, shouldn't be about scaling. It should be much more about how are we going to become more important to our ideal customer profile? Let's do more of the things that we know don't work. That's really clever. Isn't yeah, it? I, I agree. And I, I don't get it, but it's kind of a, it's an industrialization of marketing that has occurred through the MarTech stack that I think yeah. we need to get back to some of like the stuff where I came across this first was um, Seth Godin, 
uh, and permission marketing and tribes and you know those kind of techniques I think are the ones that we should be revis revisiting a lot more how how do we come important to a perhaps a smaller audience who really cares about what we're doing and yeah, will get committed to us as opposed to and get permission for the things that we we're doing as opposed to spray and pray yeah and, and it's, it's the praying that doesn't work the spraying yeah. <laughs> Prayers work. I'm a big believer in prayer, but yeah, the spraying part maybe is not. So, yeah. So, so you, you know, Tom, you're absolutely right. So, so <laughs> I, I advocate that we are more selective in who whom we reach out to, mm -hmm. and that we do a better job at engaging them rather than just reaching out to them. Yeah, I and, agree. And, and it'll it'll be less effort, but it'll be more rewarded. And like I said, it will feel less like selling to both the seller and the buyer. Yeah. Now we might have gone over some of this because you did mention kind of the traditional funnel. Um, and I know that you've got kind of a new definition of it because as you said, 1898, if we're still using something from 1890, I don't know of too many inventions that were invented in 1898 uh, that are still around in the form that they were around. Now the automobile from Mercedes, I went to the Mercedes Museum and, you know, they had them from 1898. Those don't look anything like our modern automobile. And uh, particularly we, doesn't don't steam, like Tesla. we don't use steam engines either anymore. Yeah, so. exactly. Which were the most popular back then. So what should the new sales funnel look like? You know, why are we still using one that dates back to 1898? Okay. It's, it's, it's because we, we, we fall victim to the seven most dangerous words in business. And they are we have always done it this way, mm -hmm. right? So, so just because we've always done it this way, you know, that's why we're still doing it. Um, so it, it, Tiffany Bovo gave me this, this uh, term that, um, from Salesforce, gave me this term mm -hmm. that um, people find it difficult to change the wheels on the car while it's moving, mm -hmm. you know? But, but let's face it, uh, at, at the latest with the pandemic, the, the buyer sentiments have changed. They, they yeah. don't want to be pitched to, they don't want to be sold to, they don't want to be ambushed, they don't want to be hijacked in, into a, a, a purchasing decision. They now want to be helped to make an informed buying decision. That's kind of what they want, right? So, so why not give them what they want? Yeah. And let's use this moment, Peter, as a singularity, right? To where we're, we're able to transform and not just keep doing what we've always been doing. Because yeah. literally, you know, the world stopped in a way selling stopped, even if it was for a moment. So we do have this opportunity now, I think, to, since things have slowed down a little bit, or at least uh, need to be reimagined, that now is the time to kind of reinvent to this more modern pipeline. Spot on, Tom. Look, the, the pandemic is the ideal catalyst for change. You know, mm -hmm. we've got the perfect once in a generation excuse to do something different, right? And it's not even an excuse, we should just respond to the market demands, right? So, so um, the, what, what, um, what I want to do is I want to modernize the sales funnel. You know, let's, let's bring it out of the 1890s and, uh, and into the 2020s and, and, make, it, and make it more modern. Mm -hmm. And so the modern sales funnel, I call the buyer-focused sales funnel as opposed to the product-focused sales funnel. And, and so what does it do? Well, it's, it's actually not rocket science, but it describes in, in quite distinctive steps in terms of what we need to have in place in our organization to be more buyer-focused as opposed to product-focused. And so, in, in, um, like I said, it's not brain surgery, but basically you need to know who your ideal prospects are. Mm -hmm. You need to know where they hang out. Where, where do you find them? 
you need to be able to reach out to them. But as we already discussed, reaching out is not enough. You, not, you must engage them. You, you must create that lean forward moment where they go, oh, Tom, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Then we need to know how to, <clears throat> how to fend off our competitors. You know, let's face it, we're, we're never the only ones in the race to a deal. There'll be two or three others, at least, that, that the buyer will consider. And we need to make sure that we end up winning the deal. So I have a special technique, technique to do that. Mm -hmm. Then we need to win the deal. And, and winning the deal usually involves a proposal. Mm -hmm. and, and people stress over the content of their proposals, what goes into the proposal, um, probably 95% and how they submit the pro proposal probably 5% of the time. And, and I say there's a special technique that you can use that actually got one of my Californian customers, a multi-million dollar deal, simply by using this little technique that I taught them um, that, that helps you to get two or three bites at that same cherry before you, have, um, before you submit the proposal and at that point you lose control and the power, the, 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 the power of the purchase goes to the buyer, right? Because mm -hmm. they can take their sweet time to come back to you and not, not be in communication. You get crickets, you get desperate as a sales rep, you want to follow up and, uh, and uh, then you, you look desperate and make yourself less popular, right? So, so we want to delay the, the point at which we submit the proposal as much as we can, but maximize the opportunity at the same time. So there's a special technique that I teach my clients there. Then we want to give our customers a good pre, during and post purchase experience, because let's face it, the customer experience does not end with the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, so that they come back for more and give us their repeat business. Then we want our repeat customers to be so enchanted with us that they not only give us their repeat business, but they also refer new business to us. Mm -hmm. And, and so in, in total, um, there's this um, nine or 10 steps in the buyer-focused sales funnel that all help the, the guide the buyer to notice us, to be interested in us, to stick with us, to buy from us, and then to become fans and uh, refer new business to us. And, and, um, and, and Tom, there's a, um, there is a, a quick test that um, people can do themselves on my website. Um, at peterstrakoff.com um, forward slash sales assessment. And they can actually uh, assess their own current sales funnel against the new model and see where, how far away they are or how close they are to this, mm -hmm. to this new model. And, and if nothing, it's a free test. Um, and if nothing else, it'll give them great insight and hopefully inspiration to think about how they're selling and how they could uh, do it more effectively in this new, um, new buyer environment. Yeah, I love it. And I think it needs to be buyer focused. And I think the other thing is it needs to extend beyond that first mm -hmm. transaction because these are multiple transaction expand selling environments that we're in. I also love the fact because I'm a huge fan of diagnostic assessments and tools like that, that you're actually using some of this techniques in your own outreach. What better way to let, you know, buyer self-discover that they need what you're selling than with an interactive assessment or test or health check or something like that to get them engaged. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm intrigued over that as well because I've used those techniques very well and we, we've done tools like that for many, many different customers um, to great effect because it gets you engaged in a completely consultative, non-selling way. Hey, I'm just here to 
get you to understand where you're at a little bit better, where you may be weak, where you may be strong, and you know, and then and point out some and point out some new opportunities for you. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm practicing what I'm preaching. It would be disingenuous of me to to say one thing and then do another, right? So, yeah. so I'm actually I'm actually following my own advice. And Tom, it, it is actually working. Like I've, yeah. I've got oh, clients, yeah. I've got clients on in, in Australia, on the east coast, the west coast, USA, and and in the UK, and it works for all of them. And mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so it's. It's kind of a mini revolution that we say let's let's humanize selling and let's make it more pleasant for the buyer and the seller and yeah. and take the take the pressure out of it you know you know and, and it's, it's this 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 pressure to perform that actually passes the um the unpleasantness on to the buyer because the the, the ceo says to the vp of sales you know hit hit your sales target by the end of the month the vp of sales you know torments the the reps with their cadence calls <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and so how do we, yeah, Peter, how do we get out of that? Because I do think that that's, that can be damaging. You know, the sellers say, oh, and, and I've trained them before in some of these techniques, as well as I'm sure you have. And, you know, they're like, well, that's a long game is some of the things you hear back. And, and, you know, I've got a short game. I've got to answer the sales VP in my next forecast call. And I've yeah. got to show how all these deals are moving forward every week. And what you're asking me to do is actually slow down in some ways, uh, be more consultative. And that is sometimes seen as not aligned to the, you know, close early, close often, which I know you're not a big fan of, right? Yeah. Yeah. So talk about how we get out of that, uh, because I think that's the biggest challenge in implementing any of these types of motions. Okay, so so it it's probably not up to the sales VP to decide that. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it it's up to the board and the CEO to decide that, and 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 brand comes into it as well mm -hmm. because let's face it, by putting this pressure on you onto your buyer to transact by an arbitrary date, end of the month, end of the quarter, yep. it doesn't enamor you to the buyer. So 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 you actually you might make the sale. You might you might um, win the battle, but you lose the war, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in the sense that you might get the sale, but they might not come back and buy from you again. And, and how often have you heard a buyer say, "That was hard. I never want to do that again." You know, when they bought something complex like a CRM system or something like that. Mm -hmm. right? So, so we, we we don't want them to say that. We don't want them to say, "We'll never want to do this again." You know, and and it's pretty short term. It's a pretty short term attitude to, to say, "Let's just." Get the transaction and worry about everything else later. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's very short-sighted because you, you will ruin your brand and you will disenchant your buyer. They might not want to do business with you again if, if you apply pressure. Equally, a lot of discounting and value wasting goes on at the last few days of the month simply because we need to close some sales and, and, mm -hmm. and you might get the revenue, but the, your profitability looks horrible, you know? And and um, and you get you you win the vanity stats in terms of revenue, but uh, you, but the organization is not healthy on, on, underneath because the um, behind the curtain because the the, the uh, um, profitability is not there. So so anyway, I'm I'm stepping off my soapbox now. But the <clears throat> the the the, <clears throat> the decision to be nicer and to win the minds and hearts of your buyers it has to come from the top. Mm -hmm. but, but again, Tom, as you and I have already said, <clears throat> the, this is the perfect opportunity now. You've got the perfect excuse. You've got the, uh, the, the, the perfect catalyst for change. 
mm-hmm. right now. And, and it'll, it might not come back for another 20, 30 or 40 years. So, so for God's sake, <laughs> take the yeah. opportunity now and change something and, and, uh, and make, present yourself as the, the company that's pleasant to buy from. And, and change yourself for the better in, 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 in the long game. Okay, yes, it's a long game, but for God's sake, now is the time to make the decision and to act on it and not push it out further and further and, and keep doing the, the same things that we did before and that we now are increasingly not working. Yeah, move it to partnership as opposed to transaction and get it focused on outcomes rather than... And, and, and Tom, I just want to say, say one more thing. We've, we've got a whole new generation of bias coming up, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, the millennials and uh, Generation Z, Z, I was nearly going to say Z, Z, um, they, they value brand very much and, and they value what you stand for very much. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't accept this rape and pillage type attitude that, uh, you know, let's get the deal today and then worry about everything else tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, they're reminded that that's not a good idea when you look at global warming and, uh, and uh, environmental pollution and, and all that sort of thing. So... So there's a whole bunch of new buyers, a new generation of buyers coming up that will look at your organization from a brand perspective and from what you stand for and how, how what you contribute to the planet and to, to, the, to the well-being of the people, more so than the products or, or services that you're selling. Mm-hmm. So, so I think boards and CEOs owe it to themselves anyway to consider the new generation of buyers and to ready the organization for that. So again, perfect timing to do something different. Yeah, to move from product transactions to purpose-built relationships, definitely. So more stakeholders are definitely involved in each decision, extra complexity there. And in particular, Forrester had some research recently where, you know, how much more executives and finance folks are involved in the decision-making. You know, how do you best accelerate um, kind of the... Uh, the, you know, we spoke about, it's not about accelerating it, but it is, right? Because part of these techniques that you're using are about accelerating it. So how do you connect better with the executives, finance, these bigger buying committees? How do you get them to act in, in partnership on a quicker basis when in fact, the friction has never been higher for their internal decision-making? Um, so, okay. So let's start with why there are buying committees in the first place. So it, it used to be a long time ago that the CEO or the business owner would make a decision and then, then it would just be done and rolled out through the organization, right? That, that turned out to be risky because you mm-hmm. only had one person consider you know, the purchase and they may not have um, con- considered all the angles themselves. So besides, nobody wanted to get blamed for do- getting something wrong for making the wrong buying decision. So it was much safer to, to create a committee and uh, defray the risk amongst <laughs> multiple people. Um, but but there's actually um, um, a bit of, bit of sense to having a buying committee because you might have a particular solution, a product or a service, but, but a, a finance person might look at it uh, differently than a technology person, right? So for example, the, the finance guy might go, well, I'm interested in, in ROI. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in time to payback. I'm interested in um, internal rate of return. The, the technology guy might say, well, I've, I've got enough technology. I don't really need any more. But for heaven's sake, if I get some more, then I want to know that it's backed up well, that it's supported well, and it's not going to give me any more trouble than I already got because I don't want to buy myself trouble. Mm-hmm. The, then uh, there might be an end user representative uh, in, the, in the buying committee as well. And they might look at it from 
how steep is that learning curve going to be? You know, am I going to hit the, the, the ground running from day one or do I have to go spend three months to, to learn you know, how to operate this thing? So, so you can see that, um, that the individual members of the buying committee will look at the same solution from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's our job as sellers not to say one size fits all and it's really great and here are the features and, 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 the, and the price, but actually to point out to each of the individual committee members what it means to them on their terms. Mm-hmm. So to the finance guy, we'll talk about what uh, the, the financial outcomes that this thing will pr- produce. To the buyer, to the um, end user buyer, we will say, look, it's really easy to, to, um, to adopt. You know, you won't have any trouble there. To the IT buyer, we might say, look, uh, the backups like this, and and it's all it's all safe, uh, and and you know, um, they, you won't be buying any trouble. So that when they when the committee comes together, and, and by the way, I think it was CEB that said um, that there's six point eight people on average involved in a buying committee when it's a reasonably complex purchase. So so these six point eight people will come together and decide which vendor they will go with. And so what you want them to do is to realize that everybody says, oh, Tom's, Tom's product ticks my box. Oh, Tom's product ticks, no, ticks my box as well. Oh, and mine too. And so the CEO will say, well, that's, that's a unanimous decision. It's a no-brainer. We're going to go with Tom's solution. Whereas, whereas if, you, if, you, if you focus on the features of the, the product or the service or the solution that you're selling, people will have to imagine themselves what it means for them. Yeah. So again, just help them make an informed buying decision by addressing their specific concerns individually so that when they come together as a committee, it becomes a no-brainer that they need to buy yours. Yeah, and almost having a buying guide for each kind of key stakeholder that you know is involved in the decision so that they know here's the challenges it addresses uniquely, here's the um, you know unique value it can deliver to you. And that it's the easiest choice to make ultimately is what you're looking at, because what they're doing is, like you said, risk mitigating by having this committee come together and they're wanting to get as many perspectives as possible. But it has to do with, I think, minimizing risk for the organization and ultimately maximizing reward so that it has a reward to more than just one person. And it is also risk mitigated across a bigger committee of decision makers. Um, The good news with the buying committee is from a buying perspective, it actually does its job. Uh, Kenneman and some of his research on the dynamics of decision making, uh, the neuroscience dynamics of decision making indicate that, you know, group decisions are actually the best when they're made in in a less noisy kind of uh, less biased manner. Uh, And you can get buying committees that can do that. But you as the seller have to really um, kind of grease that buying committee in that you've got to make sure they understand those, those unique points of value, the unique challenges, use cases, value proof points that are going to be relevant to them. Okay, so, so, so that's absolutely right. But Tom, I want to add, add something. A, a buying committee can be horribly slow to make a decision. Yes. Simply because of the, the fact that there's multiple people involved and people are people and they have to... Yeah. Consensus over. isn't easy as hung juries know, right? Uh, but, but again, the reason that you have a buying committee is to avoid groupthink and to be blindsided to a particular flaw in the thing that you, 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 you're wanting to purchase. Mm-hmm. But talking about sales acceleration, by giving each of the buying committee members the information that they need so they can make an informed buying decision, you can actually speed up the decision-making process. So you can actually help them make an informed buying decision, which is probably about the 15th time I've said this now. <laughs> <laughs> But, 
but but by giving them the comfort that they're making the right decision will speed up the process. Yeah. No, Peter, I think it's important and it's why you're repeating it. You know, it's all about making sure they're making that informed buying decision. And you are the ambassador of trust to help them to do that. And I think it's yeah. a complete mindset change from the the old, you know, coin-operated mediating seller that just cares about the transaction. What is and I think I might know what this is going to be. What's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave our Evolvers community with today, Peter? Well, I, I would like them to adopt the buyer-focused sales funnel, of course. But but um, you don't need to just believe me and buy it blindly. I want you to I want to help you make an informed buying decision <laughs> <laughs> by by going to peterstrokeoff.com forward slash sales dash assessment and doing the free sales funnel assessment yourself and, and comparing how you're selling currently to this new ideal model, even if it's just to inform yourself in terms of where you're already doing well, where you still have a, a gap to fill and, and just consider you know, the new way versus the old way and, and use this catalyst that we have in place right now as a catalyst for change. And, and even if you don't end up doing it, at least consider it because in, in a couple of years, you'd be ruining the fact that you didn't consider it. Because yeah, and then you're still stuck in 1898. Still stuck in 1898 and paying the price. So, so do yourself a favor and just do the assessment and take it from there. Yeah, I love it. I love health checks like that. I think that uh, anyone that has a growth mindset, which I hope um, most of our listeners do as evolvers, uh, you know, what better way to get than to get a little checkup on how well you're, where you're at and uh, where you might find ways to grow even better and faster. Well, and, and Tom, if it's free and it only takes you 10 minutes, but it might give you tons of insight, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Peter, how else can folks reach and find you online? Um, so I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I think I'm up to like 16,000 followers at the moment. So, yeah, so I'm easily found. I've, I've written 194 articles. <laughs> <laughs> on, on LinkedIn, I've got a, a YouTube channel. I've got a, a Bright Talk channel. Um, if, if you just type my name into Google, I'm sure you, I'll come up. Yeah, and we'll include the LinkedIn address. Just don't friend Peter and uh, and then pitch slap him. It won't work. And wow. uh, but do sign up for Peter on LinkedIn. Follow him. His articles are fantastic. I always love to read them, and I always learn a lot. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Awesome. And thank you for making the Evolvers community a great and growing community with your participation. Please, if you like this show, kind of tap the like button, uh, share it with uh, your associates and peers and friends so they too can become informed. And as always, until next time, Evolvers, keep evolving. Keep evolving.